Back to the Gospel of Matthew, we return this morning after several weeks away to the 16th chapter. There we'll be reading the first 12 verses. Matthew 16, this is at page 821 in your pew Bibles, if that is helpful for you. As you're turning, may I remind you that uh, Jesus and his disciples have just recently been traveling far, far north into the region of the Gentiles where he has been spending a considerable amount of time and energy healing many, the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and so on, and where he has come across the only faith described as literally great faith in uh, Matthew's gospel, the persevering faith of that Canaanite woman, unwilling to relent in petitioning the Lord for mercy for her daughter, even if she must receive it as a dog receives crumbs that fall from its master's table. It was also up north that Jesus miraculously fed, or up north, northeast, that Jesus miraculously fed the 4,000 with seven loaves and a few fish. Now, what has been remarkable about all of that is that Jesus did all of this that Jesus did up north. He did also mirrored in his acts to the south for the Jews. God's grace to the Gentiles, and we were not cherry to notice that the grace shown to the Gentiles of old has also been shown to us, flowed lavishly on them as it does on us. And we praise Him for that grace. But not everyone was praising the Lord for His great and gracious acts, as we well know. Upon returning from His northern and uh, northeastern mission, Jesus is freshly reminded, as if He could have forgotten, that the church of His day, that is especially the leadership of the church, of his day was anything but pleased. As a matter of fact, their hostilities only grown during Jesus' time away. The very first words we read in Matthew's account of Jesus' return to the western shore of the Sea of Galilee are these, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came. And we can be sure that it is not for the purpose of throwing him a welcome home party. It's as though these church leaders were just waiting there with, with bated breath for Jesus' foot to hit the beach so that they may launch their immediate offensive. What will their attack look like this time? And how will Jesus respond? Let's pray and find out. Father, we once again turn to you for the grace that we need and the grace of which we are confident because you have said that you will give when we ask when we seek wisdom without a double mind, you are sure to give it. And Father, what will please you more than to take your word by the power of your Holy Spirit and cause it to live in our hearts and there to reign that our words also and our actions, our lives that flow from our hearts may also conform to every commandment of your word. Would you do this, please, our Father? We ask it for your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 16, beginning at verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came. 
And to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. We've watched in horror as over the past week, Taliban, the Taliban has swiftly taken control of the entirety of Afghanistan, and it is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking, especially because we know how devastating this must be and its effect for our brothers and sisters there. Christians are a special target now. Already Christian pastors have been receiving ominous notes that read along these lines. We know who you are, what you do, and where to find you. All Christians, women and girls in particular, our sisters, are now in imminent danger of torture and death. We are pleading with the Lord for His help, and we're trusting that He will supply. Once again, Christians around the world might be tempted, you know, to wring our hands in fear, believing that the likes of the the Taliban are among the greatest existential threats to the church. We might list them among other Islamic or totalitarian or secularistic attacks as the church's greatest perils. But they are not. The church's greatest peril is not out there. It is not our enemies in the world as ferocious as they may be. No, the great danger, Christianity's great danger, comes from within. False doctrine within our own walls is what threatens most to undo us. I do not remember Jesus issuing any warning, or at least no direct warning as serious about the threat of the world as he does here about the threat posed to the church by the church. 
That is by false doctrine propounded by the church's leaders. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Inasmuch as the portion of Scripture we've read this morning seems to have two distinct parts, the encounter with the leaders in the region of Magadan to the west of the Sea of Galilee and the interaction between Jesus and his disciples after they'd gotten in the boat and crossed back over to the eastern side. So we consider the passage in two points this morning. First, the wanton unbelievers in the church and second, the warning to believers in the church. First, consider the wanted unbelief that exists in the church, by which I mean unbelief that is hostile to the truth of God, even when standing face to face with the truth of God. The Pharisees and Sadducees were, as you know, the leaders of the church in Jesus' day. Together, these two the members of these two leading Jewish sects made up what is called the Sanhedrin, the Council of Jerusalem, which constituted the highest Jewish authority. Now, usually the Pharisees and the Sadducees were antagonists. I mean, embroiled in disagreements with one another because they were so vastly different in their beliefs. They've been described respectively, respectively, as the conservatives and the liberals of the church of their day. Pharisees on the one hand have been described as, as people who held to the inerrancy of the Bible, the, to the sovereignty of God, the seriousness of the issue of human salvation. But they were, as we've learned also, legalists who imagined that it lay within their power to offer God a righteousness sufficient to earn their entrance into heaven. They were, however much they may also have spoken of God's grace and God's covenant, they were at bottom Pelagians. They were do-gooders whose view of life and salvation amounted to an emphasis of pulling oneself up by one's own bootstraps. Now the Sadducees, on the other hand, have been described in our parlance as the theological liberals of their day. They hailed as liberals often do from the upper classes, the, the social and the intellectual elite. They had a reputation for being know-it-alls. They had questions about the authority of parts of the Bible. They were always doubtful about the supernatural. They didn't believe in angels, for example. They didn't even believe in the resurrection. In fact, they didn't believe in any kind of personal survival after death whatsoever. They believed that man had the power to choose good and evil, and God exercises no influence over human actions. That's the Sadducees. We might call them religious humanists in our modern-day language. Now, as I say, they were typically antagonistic to one another, even hateful of each other, though Together, they represented official Judaism. But as much as they hated one another, they hated Jesus more. As is often the case in war, or as it is said in misery, a mutual hatred makes for strange bedfellows. 
It's striking, even surprising to find them allied here, but both are desperately determined to discredit Jesus. But how? Well, they concoct a plan. Demand a sign from Jesus, but not a sign like he'd been performing thus far for the most part. No, they demand a sign from heaven. Now, what do they mean by that? William Hendrickson believes that they were demanding something like manna falling from the sky, as in Moses' day, or or the sun standing still, as in the days of Joshua, or or fire falling from heaven, as in the days of Elijah. Now, of course, even if Jesus had done any of these things, you know what they would have done, right? You remember from Matthew's gospel what they were doing. They would have ascribed this, too, to the power of Beelzebul. What they failed, what they refused to realize was that the sign from heaven, the sign from heaven, was standing right there, right in front of them. Remember Simeon blessing the little family of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus? They saying to his mother that the child is appointed for a sign that is opposed. Well, here Simeon's prophecy is coming true. They demanded a sign, but they will not believe the one that is standing right in front of them who has fulfilled prophecy after prophecy after prophecy, whose works, whose words manifestly show that he is the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one. They are blind, willfully, rebelliously blind. And Jesus goes on to show how ironic that blindness truly is to what is perspicuously clear before them that day. He answers their demand for a sign from heaven, verse 2. When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. In the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky. But you cannot interpret the signs of the times. They're leaders of the church. But they make better meteorologists than they do theologians. They could look to the sky and and predict a storm, but they could not discern the times, the time in which they were living, the great revelation of the Son of God. Hendrickson says that Jesus rebukes these men because they pay far more attention to constantly changing weather conditions than to events that usher in epoch-making historical changes. It was Debbie's mother in Wisconsin who who first taught me that line, red sky in morning, or red sky at night, sailors delight, red sky in morning, sailors take warning. As it turns out, that saying is based on a more ancient one that has shepherds in the place of, of sailors. But the point is that these church leaders knew well about interpreting the sky for signs of weather, but they missed the signs of the times. And now, of all things, in an act that required A great amount of unbelief. They demand a sign from heaven. From Jesus. This is wanton unbelief. But the point for us to note well this morning is that this unbelief still exists today. 
exists in the church just as surely as it did then and, and at every point in between since then. And its greatest proponents have always been dressed in clerical garb. Christian ministers in Christian pulpits over the centuries have delivered deadly error, whether in the ancient forms of Gnosticism, Arianism, Pelagianism, salvation for sale in medieval Europe, rationalism in the 18th century, anti-supernaturalism in the 19th and 20th, and all of that now, or so much of it, mixed with strong doses of cultural Marxism and relativism now in the 21st. Jesus is presented in so many Christian pulpits today, this minute, as anything but the Almighty Son of God who came from heaven to be born of a virgin, to live and die in the place of sinners, only to rise again triumphant over the grave after three days for himself, triumphant and for all those who trust in him, deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. Rather than the Lord of all who demands our trust and our allegiance and our obedience, he is the poster child for, he's a convenient mascot for a hundred social causes. There is not a mere misunderstanding of Jesus going on, dear flock. There is wanton unbelief, refusal to receive him as he is revealed to us in Holy Scripture in the church. Now, it's not, that, uh, not for a lack of a sign that unbelief runs rampant from pulpit to pew either. Now, sure, Jesus says no sign will be given to an evil and adulterous generation, but then, and what I can't help but think uh, maybe a last-minute sort of stroke of compassion, he does offer them one sign, doesn't he? The sign of Jonah. Now that sign, as we already know from earlier in Matthew's gospel, we studied this already, and from having providentially just spent five weeks in that prophet, consists of three days. Three days that Jonah spent in the belly of the fish. That points to the three days Jesus would spend in the grave, only to emerge, as Jonah did from the fish, triumphant over death. This is the sign for all times. This is the sign, you know, the sign we still have today for those who will receive it. It's the sign of all signs, the empty tomb, the resurrected Jesus. What better sign could he have given to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? (laughs) Or how could he give it to them uh, more in the teeth, I suppose you might say. The Sadducees who refused the resurrection, the Pharisees who who, uh, believed it but refused it for him. You know, only wanton unbelief looks on that sign, on the sign of the resurrection, and still refuses to believe. And alas, there's plenty of that sort of unbelief. I know I'm ringing the changes on this, but in the church. Thus, second come Jesus with his warning to believers in the church. It's a strong warning, verse 6. Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees 
and Sadducees. Strong, I say, because Jesus wraps his warning in two commandments as if, as if to underline and highlight and hang a post-it note on there for all of us to see and to, to note carefully. Watch. Watch and beware. This is perilous. There are at least two reasons supplied by the story that follows that underscore just how perilous the situation really is. One is the dullness of the disciples. The other is the danger of the threat. First, the dullness of the disciples. And it's almost comical here, isn't it? I mean, though it was no laughing matter, of course, to Jesus, they had forgotten to bring bread for their trip across the sea, so their focus is on their stomachs. Jesus' mind is still on the interaction that he had just had with the religious leaders on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus, out of what's in his heart, says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And in a short-sighted panic, all they heard was leaven. That's all they heard was the word leaven. And all they could think of was bread. And the question started, you know, who was supposed to stop at the grocery store? You know, it wasn't me. Well, did nobody think to grab some bread before we left? Oh, no, now what are we going to do? Mark tells us, Mark tells us that Jesus sighed deeply when the church leaders demanded from him a sign. But can't we imagine the sigh? of Jesus now in that boat. Really, fellas? Children? Why are you talking about bread? Oh, you of little faith. Now, isn't it interesting that he says, you of little faith, and not something like, oh, you of little knowledge, or oh, you of little understanding. The understanding will come, but the point that Jesus is making, once again, is that faith is the thing. Faith is the key thing. With faith, you will understand. If you have faith, you will be able to withstand the trickery of the false teachers, but their weak faith left them ignorant and vulnerable. You know, not only in a misunderstanding of the Lord's metaphor here of leaven for false teaching, but keeping them from benefiting from the lesson of having witnessed not one but two miraculous mass feedings. You know, the dullness of the disciples was not primarily due to a shortage of knowledge or even understanding. It was due to a lack of faith. You know, many people think that understanding comes first and then faith follows. But surely Augustine has it right when he says, I believe that I may understand. I believe that I may understand. Faith comes first, then understanding. In our fight against being drawn into the influence of false teachers and their teachings in the church, we must have understanding, yes, but our first prayer and the prayer into which we pour ourselves must be the prayer for faith, for greater, stronger faith. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That is our passionate prayer. Lord, strengthen our faith 
as we sing from time to time in this house of worship. Our hope is in no other save in Thee. Our faith is built upon Thy promise free. Oh, grant to us such surer, stronger hope and sure that we can boldly conquer and endure. It is faith that is the victory. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Faith is the victory that overcomes false teaching in the church. We must have our dullness removed, but we must also second know how dangerous is this threat. It's not for nothing Jesus describes false teaching in the church as leaven. And you all know how leaven works, right? Maybe you remember watching your your mom make bread at home. And she took water and added flour and added oil or, or butter and salt and she mixed it all together and she kneaded it out on the counter, right? Until it was a soft ball of dough. But then... Because you were standing there distracting her, she realized, oh no, I forgot to put in the yeast. And so she goes over to the refrigerator, clever mother that she is, pulls out the bottle of yeast, opens it, takes a few grams of what looked like little, little crumbs, and she mixes it with water into a tiny little ball, and she carefully folds that in, and she mixes it and kneads it also into that dough And she puts it in a pan, and she leaves it on the counter. And you remember what happened so magically, right? You came back a few hours later, and what was happening? That dough that she pushed in the bottom of the pan, put there, it now is rising and peeking over the the edges of the pan. Now, the reason that it rose, that it grew full of those tiny little air bubbles that make bread the wonderful delight that it is, despite you and your distractions, is that she had put that tiny little bit of yeast, of leaven, into that ball of dough. Yes, Jesus calls it leaven. Today we call it yeast. Now, what made your mother's bread a success was that little bit of yeast, very subtly but very really, crept its way into the whole loaf. Just so, false teaching subtly but really spreads and infects and grows through the church until it takes over. Like leaven, error spreads insidiously through the whole body. Over time, entire churches have been lost. And the Christians of entire countries, as we know, go visit them where once Christianity was the majority report and now Christians are hard defined and and regions of the world lost to false teaching. Just as the Pharisees did, so false teachers today add to to the Bible their own traditions until God's word is layered under man's laws and even man's efforts at salvation. And just as true as the Sadducees of old, so false teachers today chip away at God's word, denying first this and and then that until they have eaten away the heart of the Christian faith. And don't think it can't happen here, dear flock. The past 400 years of Presbyterianism alone, nay, the 
the last 100 supply us with plenty of real instances in which, on the one hand, fundamentalists and conservatives have, have layered rule upon rule upon rule on God's Word until we know of one entire denomination built on the foundation of teetotalism as the law. And on the other, liberals have taken away from God's Word so that a preacher in the 1920s could stand in a prominent Presbyterian pulpit in New York City and say that he had never met an intelligent Christian who believed in the virgin birth and be applauded for it. Watch and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Remember this. It was the church that ultimately rejected and then murdered the Savior of the world. How could such a thing happen? Simple, false teaching. Dear flock, as you love your children, as you love your grandchildren, as you love your own souls, beware, watch and beware their leaven. Watch and beware false doctrine. Amen.